Welcome to the Sword and Song Podcast. Here, Montana pastors Jonah Barnes, Ted Sutton, and Flynn Ayers discuss issues that build up the church and defend her from the enemies of the faith. That the glorious gospel song will be heard throughout Earth's remotest bounds. For my message now, we are continuing in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. These are the words of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne." He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that you have sustained it through the ages, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And now we ask that your Holy Spirit, who is among us, would enliven our hearts and open our minds to understand what you have to say to us in a perverted generation. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> what is evidently clear from this text that I, was, that I have for you this afternoon is that Jesus has come to be the King by means of the Word of God. He has fulfilled the promises of God given to King David, which had been written down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' kingship, therefore, is inseparable from the Holy Spirit and the word which he inspired. To prove that Jesus is king, Peter quotes the Bible. Which is good to know. Because the choice that people have in this world, and yes, even nations too, is Pentecost or perversion. 
The gift of the Spirit of God is for every nation under heaven, and we reject him to our own doom. Kiss the Son or perish. What Peter proclaims here is the objective truth of the rule and reign of Jesus as the King of heaven and earth. We don't get to choose Jesus to be our King. We don't allow Him to rule. He is the King. He does rule, no matter how people feel about it. God had attested to the truth, Peter says, of who Jesus is by miracles and wonders and signs. The kingdom of God, the kingdom from heaven, came to earth because Jesus came. It is undeniable. And the problem with the Pharisees in that generation and the temple leaders of that time is that they failed to recognize what was right in front of their eyes. They failed to recognize the King of Kings. They had in their midst the everlasting King. And when he was presented before them by a Roman governor, they pledged allegiance to Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, they declared. And when they yoke themselves to the great sea beast, they in turn are devoured by that very same beast. Idols are destructive. You want Caesar as your Lord rather than Jesus? Then Caesar you will have and Jesus will use Caesar to bring you down. They rejected the king of kings and delivered him over to be crucified, Peter says. Cursed, hanged on a tree. But Peter is quick here in our text to let them know, let the men of Israel know, that this was not a hiccup in God's plan. So this Jesus, whom you've crucified, was not a surprise to God. God did not say, when the son of his love was hanging on the tree, now what am I going to do? In verse 23, Peter plainly tells them that Jesus being nailed to the tree by the hands of lawless men was indeed the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was the means by which Jesus, the greater son of David, would become the everlasting king of heaven and earth. By Jesus dying according to the plan of God, he could then overcome all of his enemies, even death and Hades. But to gain the victory... He had to suffer and die. He could do this, of course, because he is the innocent man, the only one. When an innocent man undergoes a false verdict at the hands of lawless men, God makes it right. This is the God we serve. They said Jesus was guilty, but the court of highest appeals declared Jesus innocent and thereby reversed the verdict and raised him from the dead. You declared him guilty falsely and put him to death. The Father declared him innocent and raised him from the dead. Verse 24. And then Peter says that this puts an end to the agony of death. The word agony there is the same word used for labor pains. The pain of death was always meant to give way to life. Death was always meant to lead to resurrection. Jesus is the one who brings an end to the labor pains of death because death could not hold him. Death could not keep him. And he burst forth from Hades, the firstborn from the dead. Peter then says that this was promised to happen according to Psalm 16. David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Because he is at your right hand. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not forsake my soul to Hades. 
nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says that David wrote about Jesus. And all of Israel, you know, from when David penned that, that hymn, that psalm, and they were singing it in the temple, from that day forward, Israel had been singing this psalm about Jesus for hundreds of years. And Peter says they should have known the truth. That, that because David died, like Jesus died, and because David was buried, like Jesus was buried, that this psalm is not about David, but about someone else. He says David's body is in the tomb, unlike Jesus. David knew Jesus was coming to die, and David knew that the Messiah would not be held by the power of death in Hades. So he writes then, in Psalm 132, verse 11, Peter quotes again, God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne. Peter says that David looked ahead to the resurrection of Jesus. He knew one of his sons would be the king and the Messiah. So God had testified about Jesus in his mighty works for three years. David testified about Jesus in his songs, which all Israel should have recognized. And then Peter says that he and the apostles are all witnesses of the truth. They were with Jesus for three years. They watched him die. They saw him raised. And they saw him ascend. Verse 33, then Peter gives a therefore. Because, because of all these things, Peter says, now, now because of all these things, there's a therefore. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Jesus has received the Holy Spirit from the Father. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And now, therefore, has poured out the powerful Spirit of God. Pentecost is the sign of Jesus' heavenly rule on earth. As Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, He received all authority in heaven and on earth. The Father gave Him the Holy Spirit as a gift, and as a sign of His rule from heaven, in this earth, He pours out that powerful Spirit upon His people. How do we know that Jesus reigns on earth right now? The gift of His Spirit. Peter goes on to say then that Jesus and not David then is the one who ascends into heaven, pours out the Spirit, so that, then he quotes Psalm 110, all of his enemies can be made a footstool for his feet. That is where Jesus is sitting. That is the location from which Jesus has poured out the Spirit on the earth. And he's done so, so that the Davidic king can inherit all the nations and make all the enemies of God a footstool for his feet. And then in verse 36, Peter gives the men of Israel another therefore. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord, that is King, and Christ, that is Messiah. This is Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that statement, that therefore, is a promise and it is a threat. Just think, if you, just think if you were in that generation and you're the ones who called for the blood of Jesus. You're the ones who pledged allegiance to Caesar over the son of David. And then he just tells you, Peter gets up and he proclaims to you that this man whom you killed, God raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and gave all authority in heaven and earth and made him king and Messiah. That's a threat. 
They are the enemies of the Messianic king who has authority and power over them. He has the authority and the power and is testified to them all by the giving of the Holy Spirit. So make your choice, O men of Israel. What will you decide? Pentecost or perversion? If you're his enemies, then you will be subdued. He quotes Psalm 110. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. No one can overpower the Spirit of God and the King who sent him forth. If you don't join him, you will lick the dust. The Jews tried to oppose him and failed. The Romans tried and failed. The devil tried and failed. Death and Hades tried and failed. He was raised from the dead in power, and he rules on earth from heaven. Choose. He is king and Messiah. He rules and he saves. He conquers and he restores. This was the hope of Israel, and it is the hope of every nation under heaven. In a perverted world, Pentecost happened. What did Pentecost bring to a world broken in Adam? Pentecost brought a king and a kingdom. The Spirit came to bring the rule of Jesus, the king and Messiah, to every enemy under heaven. This this Jesus and this spirit have not gone anywhere. He's still enthroned at the right hand of the Father and his spirit is still on the move in this earth. We can often look at the times in which we live in despair. If Jesus were truly ruling over the earth right now from heaven, would it really look like this? This is where the rest of the book of Acts is so important for us. Luke shows us how Jesus, the king, rules and reigns in the world. Jesus always does the unexpected. Pentecost is, of course, the affirmation that the Lord is active in the world. And when he's on the move through his spirit and people, things get shaken up. Turbulent times are necessary. Notice that Peter roundly affirms that the deeds of lawless men were integral to the providential plan of God to exalt Jesus as king. And so the hands of lawless men and their deeds were integral to the providential plan of God to exalt his son as the king and Messiah. We have the tendency to look at hardship and the temporary rule of the wicked over us as hindrances to the kingdom. We have the pessimistic tendency to think that losing is losing. Or that Jesus is detached from the affairs of the world. Or more particularly, our individual affairs. We can in our despair come to think that the power of heaven has abandoned the trials of the earth. But Acts shows us differently. Acts shows us that behind everything, King Jesus is at work. Jesus did not stop his activity in the world when he ascended into heaven. But the center of his activity shifted. The, we know he no longer functions from the city of Jerusalem on earth. Now he subdues the nations from the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Jesus is in heaven directing the affairs of the earth through the presence of his spirit among his people. We see this truth all throughout the book of Acts. You know, sometimes we have because of, because of poor, I'm just going to say it. Because of bad theology, remember, we think that the devil is the ruler of this world and there's demons behind every bush. 
And what the book of Acts shows us is that Jesus is ruler of this world, and behind every bush, he is active. In Acts 1, after Jesus ascends into heaven, verses 23 to 26, Jesus is the one who chooses Matthias to replace Judas. You ever notice that? Jesus is the one who directs the turning of the dice to fall on Matthias. The text says this, They put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You Lord, who's that? That's King Jesus. You Lord, you King Jesus, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. King Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, turned the lot to fall on Matthias. Jesus is sovereign over the roll of the dice. In Acts 2, verses 46 and 47, we read that it was Jesus who adds men, women, and children to the church. And they were daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily. Who's that? It's King Jesus. Again, the apostles are on trial in Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. And we read that it is Jesus the King who grants repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They say, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, king and messiah, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the king, gives repentance. He turns the dice. He adds to the church. He gives repentance. In Antioch, after the persecution of Stephen... The church is scattered. The the preaching to the Gentiles begins. And it brings about conversions because the hand of the king is with them. We read in Acts 11. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. But there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Remember those who were baptized out of all the nations under, the he- uh, under heaven on the day of Pentecost. Those who were baptized there in Acts chapter 2. Those of Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks. Proclaiming the good news of King Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the king. The hand who has all authority in heaven and on earth was with them. And a large number believed and turned to the Lord. It's Jesus the Lord, the King, who opens Lydia's heart in Acts 16.14. When Saul rages against the church and breathes out murder, when he orders and approves of the imprisonments and martyrdom of God's people, when the greatest threat of the church in the book of Acts looms over the people of God, King Jesus not only stops that threat, but uses the main instigator of persecution to become the greatest evangelist and theologian in history. Acts 9 verses 1 to 2 says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder like like a dragon, against the disciples of the Lord, of the King, 
he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the, to the synagogues of Damascus. So Saul wants to go uh, to the high priest and he says, sign these papers so I can go to Damascus and in those synagogues find all the Christians. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Give me letters so I can go to Damascus lawfully to arrest these people who are corrupting the worship of Yahweh. Paul wants to bind on earth the free citizens of the kingdom from heaven. We read then in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 9. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose up, and he was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. And for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Where did Paul, Saul, ask for letters from the high priest to go and arrest Christians? Damascus. Now, he is in Damascus, spending days with the disciples of the Lord, of the King. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. The very same place he was going to go and arrest people and bind them in chains and bring them into prison is the very same place he goes and he says, Truly he is the Son of God. Truly he is the Davidic King. King Jesus later commands Paul in Acts 23, verses 10 to 11. He commands him this. And as a great dissension was developing, because the commander was afraid, the Roman commander was afraid, Paul would be torn to pieces by them, by the Jews. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him him into the barracks. But on that very night, the Lord, Jesus, stood at his side and he said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome. He said, take courage. You've done your duty in Jerusalem. Now you must go to Rome. Take courage. Just Jesus the king says to Paul, you will preach in Rome. (laughs) On the night that he was nearly torn to pieces. But does Paul have reason to take courage? And what's ahead of him? He's got... He's got this, uh, the Jews plan to assassinate Paul. Remember, some of them say, we will not eat nor drink until we kill this man. There is a plot to assassinate Paul. What about, what about Paul going into the court of corrupt governor officials? What about Paul being in shipwrecks? What about Paul being in storms? What about Paul being bitten by poisonous snakes? But King Jesus said, you will preach in Rome. When Paul gets to Rome, after all of those events, guess what we read in Acts 28? Now at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island, and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And after a day, when a south wind sprang up, on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus, we came to Rome. And the brothers, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and from the three inns to meet with us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Jesus told Paul he would preach in Rome. And despite all the odds against it happening, Jesus, the king of heaven and of earth, successfully brings Paul to Rome. Jesus' word does not fail. He does not lose. 
The kingdom of God has arrived because the kingdom of God is present in the ministry of Jesus on earth. And we carry on that ministry through the Spirit. It's Pentecost or perversion. What Jesus did in three years in Israel and in Jerusalem, he now does in every nation under heaven through his Spirit-empowered bride. And every obstacle set against the church is nothing more than an opportunity for Jesus to be magnified. The king of the kingdom is here, and entrance into that kingdom is through a faithful response to him that he gives. Peter shows us that the man who sits at the right hand of the Father has the supreme authority over everything. Over the turning of the dice, over storms, over courts, over poisonous snakes, over the hearts of men, women, and children. He is the king. And the church needs to remember that we have a sovereign. This king is ours. And we are to have a romance of being loyal to this king. What's better in life? You, you guys love all these stories, right? All these stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. We love, story, we love Reapy Cheap. Everybody loves Reapy Cheap. Sam. Everybody loves Sam. Those are our favorites, right? Reapy Cheap Sam. If they're not, repent. Why? Because we love unflagging loyalty. What's more romantic in this world than seeing a servant of a king be loyal to the very end? Is anything better than that? And what kind of king do we serve? The king who is sovereign over everything. The, the strength, have you ever wondered what makes martyrs so strong? I mean, you guys know stories of martyrs, and we read them and we think, I don't know if I could ever do that. Their strength comes from knowing the king whom they serve. This king is the king we serve. And in whose kingdom we now live. And he is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over Planned Parenthood. Don't be afraid. He is sovereign over the Republican Party and over the Democrat Party. He is sovereign over every courtroom in this nation, every hospital room, every office where legislation is written, every raindrop, every sparrow. Not one thing can happen apart from him. We ought to love this king and trust this king. And we must show our children what that looks like. When the church is first persecuted in Acts chapter 4, when they get arrested and they get beaten, do you remember the first words out of their mouths when they prayed? Sovereign Lord. When they get released from the temple... And they're let out of prison and they're commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They get back to the disciples and they tell them all that happened and they prayed together. And the first words they say in their prayer are sovereign Lord. They knew that nothing could happen to them apart from the sovereign Lord, the king. They prayed and they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So later in the book of Acts, when Herod kills James, or when a Roman governor acts like a yellow-bellied sissy, or when the Gentiles rage, or when the Jews breathe out threats and murder, that same sovereign hand of King Jesus is at work. They do whatever our king has predestined them to do, and no more. 
We need to believe that. Persecutors can do nothing to us outside the will of our sovereign Jesus. Some of you may know the story of Pastor Joseph Sohn. He was a pastor in Romania in the 70s. He was persecuted by the government. He was imprisoned, interrogated, and beaten for being a Christian pastor. He says that he endured his trials knowing that the soldiers who beat him and tortured him could do no more than what his Father in Heaven allowed them to do. He was being interrogated by six men, and he told them this, Sirs, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. The interrogators were, of course, puzzled by this, and Pastor Sohn continued, My God in this is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is, but maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. But sirs, I only know that you will only do to me what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch farther because you are only an instrument of my Lord. Sohn continues in his memoirs to say that every day when he saw those six pompous men, he only saw them as his father's puppets. In one interrogation where the soldiers were threatening to kill Joseph... This is what he said. He said, Sir, let me explain to you how I see this. Your supreme weapon is killing me. And my supreme weapon is dying. Here's how this works. You know that my sermons and my tapes have spread all over this country. And if you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. And everyone will know that I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and they will say to themselves, I better listen to this again, to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. And so, sirs, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. And I will actually, actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After Pastor Joseph had said this to them, the interrogator sent him home. Another officer said, We know that Pastor Sohn would love to be a martyr, but we are not foolish enough to fulfill his wishes. (laughs) Our Sovereign Lord. Sohn continues to say in his memoirs, I stopped to consider that statement, because for many years I had been afraid of dying. I tried to keep a a low profile because I wanted so badly to live. I wasted my life in inactivity for the Lord. But now that I placed my life on the altar, and I decided I was ready to die for the sake of the gospel, they were telling me that they would not kill me. I could now go wherever I wanted in the country, and I could preach wherever I wanted, knowing that I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was going to lose it. And now that I was willing to lose my life, I found it. Suffering is integral to the mission of the church. It should not surprise us. It was there, Peter says in verse 23, with a predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was his plan to use the hands of lawless men... To save the world. Satan's plans to destroy the church, the plans of wicked men to obliterate the people of God, only serve to spread the church abroad and to grow the people of God. It was at the same, it was the same at the cross when God turned the entire 
fallen Adamic world on its head. And that very moment of their supreme victory in killing was his supreme victory in dying. Jesus holds the fate of the history of the world in his hands. King Jesus is responsible for the outcome and the response to all of our efforts on his behalf. And King Jesus has determined to bring about his purposes for the world by means of his Holy Spirit through his people. And this involves our suffering. The Lord reigns absolutely, and yet his reign is contested. The accomplishment of God's saving kingdom in the world, the accomplishment of God's saving kingdom in the world, not the failure of it, but the accomplishment of it, explains the suffering of the church. The suffering of the church is intimately related to her dominion in the world. Our choices are certainly Pentecost or perversion. We get to choose. But what's happening in the world is not simply a choice, but as Pastor Flynn mentioned, it is war. The war is between Pentecost and perversion. That's the war. And what we offer this rebellious and broken world is the exact same thing that Jesus the King has graciously given to all of you. We offer them the same gift that the sovereign King has given to us. We offer them the life of the Spirit of God. In the war between Pentecost and perversion, Pentecost always wins. And it is the good purpose of God to use the perversion of the world to bring about the kingdom of our Lord. The rise of the wicked has never been a hindrance to the kingdom of God. When we look at what could come upon us in the future, the trials and the persecutions, we need to remember that with Jesus on the throne, the spread of his word and the growth of his kingdom are not hindered by it at all. Without Pentecost, there would be only perversion and death. I hope and pray that we won't be persecuted martyrs. Some of us may. You know, we, we, but this truth, this romance of the king and of the kingdom, applies to more than just our blood being spilled. You know, if you were to ask Pastor Joseph Stone, why did you stand against tyranny? I imagine he'd say something like this. For the king and for the kingdom. And we want that. We want that loyalty. We want that romance of the kingdom. But not all of us will be like Pastor Joseph. So how can we counter and replace a perverted culture of death? We'll live for the king and for the kingdom. And I don't mean everyone has to be a missionary or a pastor or seek out martyrdom. That's too narrow. uh, That is powerful and a blessing all on its own. But not everyone is called to that kind of thing. And as I mentioned earlier, our sovereign Lord cares about everything. So, Pastor Joseph, why did you stand against the tyrannical government? For the king and for the king, for the king and for the kingdom. Mother of seven children, why did you change those diapers? For the king and for the kingdom. I mean, how can we live for the king and the kingdom? He cares about everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Why? For the king and for the kingdom. Husbands, submit, uh, wives, submit to your husbands in all things. Why? For the king and for the kingdom. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
Obey your, maybe we should, we should probably paraphrase it, right? Children, obey your parents in the king. You have a king. You live in a kingdom. And that king and that kingdom requires that you obey your parents to be loyal to him. Teach your sons to protect and cherish girls. Why? For the king and for the kingdom. Teach your daughters to honor boys. Why? Are you catching on? For the king and for the kingdom. Play baseball for the king and the kingdom. Do dishes for the king and for the kingdom. Split firewood for the king and for the kingdom. Host a dinner party for the king and for the kingdom. Paint a house. Become a mechanical engineer. Mow your neighbor's lawn. Write a book. Paint a picture. Bake some cookies. Get married. Have babies. Why? For the king and for the kingdom. Whatever you do, do it mightily for the king and for the kingdom. Teach your children to learn, uh, to read. Teach them mathematics. Teach them to fold the laundry. Teach them to bake bread and to break bread. Why? For the king and for the kingdom. Stay awake to 4 a.m. with a crying baby. Rub your husband's back when he gets home from work. Listen to your wife tell you about her day. Why? For the king and for the kingdom. You see, Christians, that whatever you do, you are to do it for the king. And then whatever the king does through you is for the kingdom. And this is how Pentecost will end the war against perversion. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the goodness of your word. We're thankful for the sovereign rule of our King Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he is our Lord and our Messiah. That in him we have life and life everlasting. We have the forgiveness of sins. And through our faith, we have overcome the world already. We ask, Father, that you would never allow the Pentecost the Pentecost of the King and of the kingdom in this world to leave us. That you would cause our hearts to be loyal to him all the days of our lives so that we might overcome a perverse generation. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Sword and Song, please share and subscribe. We encourage you to send your comments and questions to swordandsong at protonmail.com. See you next time.